0: Welcome to the National Vaccine Information Center's podcast series, Vaccination, Politics, Money, and Media Bias. These podcasts are from previously recorded commentaries, articles, and presentations produced by MVIC, a charitable nonprofit organization. Our next
1: speaker is Minnesota State Senator Scott Jensen, who graduated from the University of Minnesota Medical School and has been a family practice physician for 30 years. In November 2016, Dr. Jensen was elected to the Minnesota State Senate and also was honored as Minnesota Family Physician of the Year by the Minnesota Academy of Family Physicians. In 2019, Senator Jensen authored and presented seven unique bills on the Senate floor that passed unanimously, including a groundbreaking bill representing a new chapter of state statute. He is the author of the 2015 book, Relationship matters. The foundation of medical care is fracturing, which features real life patient stories that emphasize the value of the patient doctor relationships and the need for patients to be their own best champions in healthcare decision making.
2: Greetings. My name is Scott Jensen, and I serve in the Minnesota State Senate representing Carver County, which is a suburb county to the southwest of Minneapolis. I'm also a family physician and I've been practicing medicine for almost 40 years. I consider myself sort of a in the trenches kind of guy. I still enjoy making occasional house calls. I've served as medical director of nursing homes and I've held various hospital staff positions. It's my honor to speak with you today because
3: these are odd times. These these are challenging times. I found it almost ironic that the title of this meeting is focused specifically
2: on the 21st century regarding the protection of autonomy and freedom
3: in healthcare, if you will. I don't know if that title was selected before, during
2: the COVID-19, pandemic or just recently but I think it identifies some real foresight. So I'm the middle child of five kids. I grew up in Sleepy Eye, Minnesota, a little town in southern Minnesota. We had several sayings. One of them was it takes a village to raise a child. Another one was if it ain't broke don't fix
3: it. My dad was my hero. My mom was my best friend. Both my parents died young of colon cancer.
2: Fast forward after graduating from high school in Sleepy Eye, I went to college at the University of Minnesota and had always dreamt of being an orthodontist. So when I was accepted into dental school, I attended my first day of class with great enthusiasm. Unfortunately, over the next 12 months, I found that while I enjoyed very much the scientific rigor that came with dental school, I didn't really have a love affair with teeth. So I did the logical thing and requested a leave of absence and attended the seminary at a Lutheran seminary in St. Paul. And during that year, I made two big decisions. I asked my girlfriend to become my wife and we've been together now 42 years. And I also decided to try to get into medical school. That effort ended up being successful and I attended medical school at the University of Minnesota and graduated in 1981, and have just had a love affair with medicine ever since. I've practiced in small towns. I've served as associate professor at the University of Minnesota Medical School, teaching students and residents for a couple of decades. Five years ago, I was tapped on the shoulder um, to run for the uh, Minnesota Senate. That was not a part of my plan. I thought that a decade on a local school board had been enough politics for me, but evidently not. So five years ago, I announced on July 4th, 2015, I would run and I was fortunate uh, to win. I actually ended up having an odd sort of accolade in that I received more votes than any other Republican state senator in that election. So the first thing that happened in the Senate for me was the governor collapsed during the State of the State speech and I ended up taking the lead on reviving him. And over the next few years, it seemed like there was always some excitement going on. I voted across the aisle on a couple of controversial issues. I have a passion that someday we should be able to provide some basic package of healthcare for all. I'm not a fan of socialized medicine. I'm a huge believer that the fact of the matter is healthcare is best delivered to
3: patients when patients are empowered and encouraged to be their own best champion. That's really important to me. In fact, it's so important to me that four years ago
2: I published a book and the title of that book was Relationship Matters.
3: The foundation of medical care is fracturing. I passionately believe that. When we give patients
2: the impression that they're not up to the task of making their own best decisions,
3: we shortchange them. We make our job more difficult as physicians. I tell many of my patients, if there's a professional golfer in this exam room and there's a caddy in this exam room, I'm the caddy.
2: The patient is the Jack Nicholas or the Tiger Woods, who has to hit the seven iron onto the green. But I'll tell the patient that there's a sand trap on the right and water to the left and the wind is in their face. That's the way healthcare works best. So when we talk about protection of autonomy and
3: healthcare needs, we really wanna focus on the patient. Fast forward to April 3rd this year,
2: in the midst of a pandemic. I received a correspondence from the Minnesota Department of Health. And in it, I was given information regarding the usage of COVID-19 as a cause of death on a death certificate. Lots of doctors don't complete death certificates because of the specialty they might be in. Radiologists probably aren't doing a lot of death certificates. But as a primary care doctor, I do and I've been doing them for 35 years. So when I was informed by this communication that I could utilize COVID-19 as the cause of death if I assumed that it caused the death or that I thought it was probable or that it contributed, this didn't smack right for me. This was inconsistent with my experience. Based on that, I made comments in a public news interview a few days later, and that went viral to
3: some five to 10 million people. Over the next few months, I was asked increasingly to speak to the
2: issue of context for COVID-19. What does that mean? Well, if we see a number or hear a number, oftentimes it's hard for us to comprehend what that number actually means. So if someone says that we've had 150,000
3: deaths from COVID-19 in the United States, how does that compare to anything else? Well, a point of context would be
2: if we add up the drug overdoses and the suicides and the accidents in America, that number would be far bigger. If we look at how many people died in the United States of influenza in 2018 and said that it was 80,000 that gives context to the 150,000 from COVID-19 this year. And if I share that in this country, we probably had somewhere close to three quarters of a million, 750,000 deaths from the 1918 flu epidemic that provides context. So when I compare COVID-19 to influenza,
3: I'm not trying to minimize the power and virulence of COVID-19. I'm trying to connect the dots. I'm trying to help people understand. To me, there is no particular value to frightening
2: people out of their wits. When people are awesomely frightened, they don't think as well for themselves. So when I compared COVID-19 to influenza, I was alleged to have been, if you will, providing reckless advice. So about a month ago, I received a letter from the Minnesota Board of Medical Practice that indeed I was being investigated and my license was, if you will, in the balance. Because I had provided reckless advice in comparing COVID-19 to influenza and I had been spreading misinformation by challenging the Minnesota Department of Health and the CDC regarding the advice they were giving in terms of how to complete death certificates utilizing COVID-19 as the cause of death. I still remember that Saturday afternoon, my wife and I drove up in our car, got the mail out of the mailbox. Mary was looking through the various letters. I was looking over her shoulder. And at the same time, we both saw the letter from the Minnesota Board of Medical Practice with my name as the addressee and big red letters, confidential. I smiled at my wife and I said, I don't think this is a check. And I doubt that it's a letter of commendation. That began a 10 day journey of trying to respond in a way that would share with the Board of Medical Practice what I'd said,
3: what I'd done, and why I'd done it. It took a lot of time. I submitted that response, and for the next month, my life was a roller coaster. Part of that reason was because I was fearful that somehow this
2: investigation by the Board of Medical Practice might leak to the media and that I would no longer be able to speak to the issue in a way that I might choose, but instead the issue would be framed by media sources. Based on this, I went ahead and spoke to the world regarding my investigation. On July 5th, I released a video About 13 minutes long, sharing with folks that indeed I was being investigated for reckless advice and spreading misinformation. I had no idea that that video would be seen by some 15 to 20 million people. But along the way, something good happened. We had a worldwide
3: discussion regarding the idea that a contrarian narrative can contribute and doesn't have to be squashed.
2: We had a discussion about what it is to be skeptical, but
3: still remain respectful. Millions of people reached out. For me, during a gut-wrenching time,
2: I received the heartwarming encouragement and support
3: of people I'd never met, from countries I'd never been in, from countries which I didn't know the capital city. And I'm grateful for that. And then three days ago, I received an
2: email from the Minnesota Board of Medical Practice, identifying that they had completed a thorough investigation, including a thorough review of the 5,000 word response I had written along with 70 pages of attachments I had submitted. They had reviewed that, and they had outright dismissed the allegations with no actions and told me that the matter was done.
3: You can imagine my relief. But along the way, I hope we've all learned something and it has to do with protection and autonomy. We have got to protect freedom of speech. We have got to protect the right of anyone to express their opinion. Autonomy matters. The fact that we're all gathering for this convention matters. This isn't about a family doctor in Watertown, Minnesota being investigated and then being exonerated. This is about if it can happen to me, it can happen to anyone. If you have any kind of certification or license and you have a regulatory board or agency that can
2: be contacted by someone who's not happy with you or not happy with an opinion you've expressed, you would be susceptible to. And that's why when I was asked to provide this presentation,
3: it was an easy, yes, I'll be glad to do it. I'm 65 years old. I lived through the civil rights movement in the 1960s. Vietnam was a cloud over my head. During my high school and early college years, I remember 911 pretty poignantly. And as a physician, I've had many patients die in my care with me at their bedside, whether it be in a hospital, a nursing home, or their own home. I've weathered a few things, but I've never seen anything like what's happened to our country in the last few months. And I don't know if we've ever faced a crisis like this in which we need to step up and protect our autonomy. Our constitution has to be attended to. We the people of the
2: United States in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility provide for the common defense,
3: promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Those are the words. So I thank you again for the opportunity to address all of you. I've shared with you
2: the nuts and bolts of my investigation from the Board of Medical Practice and the fact
3: that the allegations have been dismissed. But how can we deal with this better the next time? Because there
2: will be a next time. But how do we deal with something that I've just
3: gone through? Because if we get it right, if we learn what we need to learn, then the victory lap for
2: me being, if you will, vindicated, exonerated, choose your word, the victory lap will be run not by me, but by you, the engaged citizen of the earth. So let's talk about it. What do we need to come away with
3: in order to understand what and how censoring of freedom of speech occurs? How can we make it poignant and pertinent that if it can happen to me, it can happen to anyone? It's like a lot of things.
2: First thing we've got to do is, we've got to identify the problem. We can't solve a problem until we identify the problem and ask the right questions. The definition of the science the science method is that we observe, we measure, we hypothesize, and we create experiments to confirm or deny our hypothesis. Why did the apple fall down and not fall
3: up? Why did the powder puff of allergen particles blow from that weathered and aged dandelion
2: laterally instead of downwards? Why does airflow seek the path of least resistance? Those are the questions we ask. We observe and we measure and we try to understand. And as we ask even those questions, Hidden within those questions, there might be pertinent information regarding the value of masks in this day and age of COVID 19. But that's not the topic for the day. The topic for the day is how can we better protect our autonomy going forward? And in order to do that, we have to understand the problem. And the problem is the fear formula. What do I mean by that? Well, this has been a formula that's been used by politicians and elected officials for years but it perhaps hasn't been paraded out in front of the public. Let's take the first word, fear. If you want to write it vertically so that we can make an acrostic out of it, that'd be fine. Just write down F-E-A-R, vertically. What does the F stand for? It means you've got to frighten folks, you've got to scare people, If you want to get this thing rolling, you need to paralyze people's ability to think for themselves. How do you do that? Well, you've got to give some examples of something that could scare people. It's best if you exaggerate those examples.
3: Scare the wits out of people. And as far-fetched as the examples might be, that's okay. Make them extreme. Get people's attention.
2: Once you have their attention now with these examples, what do you do next? You have to accuse someone or something or some agency.
3: And when you make your accusation, do it with some heat. Animosity works well. Arrogance can even help. That's how
2: you get things going. And once you have frightened people and you've given examples and you have started to do the accusations, what do you do next? That's the R. Repeat
3: the process, recite the examples, and the accusations over and over again. Drive them home deep. Do you see that happening with our conversation regarding COVID-19? Do you see it happen when
2: initially we're advised that it's critically important that we engage in lockdowns because that will allow us to depress the peak and delay the surge and in so doing, allow our healthcare facilities to have the capacity or develop the capacity to deal with the crises that might come down the pike. That's what we were
3: originally told. But in almost every state we've now done that. We've depressed the peak, we've delayed the surge. Our hospital facilities and their capacities have increased. We've garnered the kinds of protective personal equipment that we need. And so what happened? The goalposts were moved. Now it's not about what we accomplished. It's about, well, the example, my stars, it's that we need to wear masks because we're not doing enough. The example is it's not enough to see the
2: fatality rate dropping and that in the eyes of many experts, including the CDC. We're starting to see the case fatality rate drop into the realm of influenza epidemics. No, that's not enough. Dr. Fauci can tell us that COVID-19 is acting much like the influenza outbreaks we see. No, now we we have to change gears. Now we have to squash the disease. we got to get it to as low a
3: number of new cases as possible so that we can wait for a vaccine. And that's how we will get herd immunity, herd immunity. My wife's a veterinarian. She's been dealing with herd immunity a lot longer than I have. We are going to
2: get herd immunity through a combination of ways. But one of the chief
3: mechanisms will be the battle fought within our own bodies by our own immune systems.
2: We probably have some level of disease resistance already in play, the same kind of disease resistance that allows 90% of the population to walk around with the comfort that they couldn't get leprosy if they put it on their Cheerios in the morning. 90% of our population
3: is resistant to leprosy. We have a disease resistance to it. What about the Diamond Princess cruise ship?
2: thousands of people on board, 17% tested positive after they had been living together, breathing the same air, doing the same kinds of things, and then quarantined together. Everybody's tested. 17% were positive. The other 83% were not. Why? Did they already have an innate immunity? Did they have the disease but didn't develop antibodies but instead developed an immunity based on cellular immunity? How would we know these things, unless we ask the questions? So now we're faced with examples from public health officials of what we need to do next. Squash the level of new cases to zero. That's the important thing. No, it's not. The important thing is the case fatality rate. The important thing is that in many states, including Minnesota, Literally a pipeline of active COVID-19 patients was established and pumped into our long-term care facilities such that 80% of the COVID-19 deaths in Minnesota
3: have occurred in long-term care facilities. What a travesty. And not only did we have a remarkable level of death in the long-term
2: care facilities, we told people in Minnesota, you're gonna die alone. You don't get to have the comfort of a loved one or a family member next to you. They might be able to touch a pane of glass and you can touch the same pane of glass from the other side, but you're dying alone. This will be a legacy memory that we should all have some embarrassment from. But getting back to the examples, we're trying to drive up fear, remember? So if we're looking good on a metric, let's change the metric. If the doubling time that it takes for new cases to occur is looking good, then let's stop measuring doubling times and let's look at a different metric. Let's look at how many cases per 100,000. Never mind the fact that we might be doing a lot more testing. Never mind that we might be testing certain pockets or hotspots so that those numbers will be up, those percentages will be up. But you get the point. If we frighten folks, provide exaggerated examples, accuse people, maybe people that put forth a contrarian narrative, and then
3: repeated over and over again, we're well on our way. So what's the rest of the formula? We need to fabricate fake news. We need to take
2: little factoids that might be no longer pertinent, but we still have to grab onto them. And as far-fetched as they might be, it's okay. Use them. We need to get fake news to, if you will, bolster our perspective. If it means that we take someone down, someone that's uttered a contrarian perspective, then take them down. We need to ostracize anybody who speaks against
3: us. That's the O in formula, ostracize your opponents. Go after them, exclude them, undercut them. What's the R stand for? It's not enough to ostracize. If you ostracize someone by excluding them, you've got to
2: go deeper, you have got to ridicule them, SCR the R. Ridicule them. And for heaven's sakes, do the M as well. And that means manipulate the messaging. If you don't like what's going on on Facebook because it's a contrarian
3: narrative, then censor it. Cut it out. Stop it. Remove it. Block it. Manipulate the messaging. Massage the public inputs and you're well on your way. Then what do we do Next. In the word formula, the letter U invites us to look at unite the uninitiated. If you've got people that are agnostic on the issue, that are perhaps unresolved in terms of what they think we should be doing, unite them. Unite them in whatever way you can.
2: Try to get them to participate in that powerful, powerful notion of groupthink. Remember Jimmy Jones in 1978? He was so effective at that. He was able to convince almost a thousand people
3: that if they would just drink the cyanide laced Kool Aid, they would glorify God. When the Challenger was
2: launched, in the midst of fears about whether or not the O ring could perform at that temperature, when that launch took place, when that happened, and it blew up, and people died. That was a product of groupthink. Legitimate concerns and thoughts had been expressed in the days and weeks prior to that launch. But when they all gathered around a table, the power and magnetic force of groupthink took over. And after spending five years, four years in the Senate, five years in the, if you will, running and getting elected, After spending that time, I have come to learn the power of groupthink. Another term I frequently use is we live in an echo
3: chamber. We surround ourselves with people who will affirm what we think. Politicians are terrible at it. But you know what? Physicians are starting to join the ranks. That gives me great
2: sadness. And it also causes me to pause for a moment and comment on my profession. When I was growing up in medical school and residency, we had things called grand rounds and tumor rounds, and tumor conferences, tumor clinics, emergency medicine clinics, staff meetings. We did these things not so that we could sit around and pat one another on the back and reaffirm our perspective. We did it to clash. We did it to understand better. I remember my wife when she had an odd, skin condition during a pregnancy and she was asked if she would serve as a subject of grand rounds so she had a chance to talk with 25 to 50 physicians as we searched for what was the cause of her skin condition there was open banter back and forth there was humor there was wisdom there was experience there was new knowledge there was
3: research those are glorious memories for me But that's not where we're at today. It seems today that if you put a
2: microphone in front of a physician, he or she will absolutely proclaim the correct view. Physicians will lacerate one another, hold them in contempt if they dare to
3: disagree. The art of asking the question, the art of Socratic teaching, is
2: evaporating from the world of medicine. And that gives me great sadness. And that's a real potential danger. And with that phenomenon has come this often seen interaction between patients and physicians where patients no longer feel like they're the central
3: figure. They oftentimes feel like they're a pawn being moved about by a physician or an insurance company or a healthcare network. So you need to unite the uninitiated, get groupthink to become
2: the focus of the day. So now we're at the formula, we're up to the L and the A. And this is really important. If you're going to utilize the fear formula successfully, you need to go to that L and you need to remember this, lead late. Don't lead in the first inning or the fourth inning. You will be ridiculed and you will be exemplified and you
3: will be vilified. Lead late. Why? Because he who leads late lies last. And the last lies last the longest. And we have a lot of lying going on. And we're going to have more of it. The idea that we're on the cusp of having
2: a vaccine breakthrough with COVID-19 that's going to provide what we're looking for in terms of herd immunity safely. And the vaccine, by the way, is going to span the ages, whether you're a month old or a hundred years old. We don't know that. I remember Jerry Ford in 1976, getting his flu vaccine on national news. And I remember within a couple of months later, the vaccine program was
3: suspended, never to be restarted again because of the outbreak of Guillain-Barre, French polio. I won't forget the day when my mom said, I don't know what to do in the 1960s when she was worried about the Asian flu. So you need to lead late. You subject
2: yourself to less criticism. You get to be the last speaker. And if you have some fibs or some exaggerations or some lies, they'll probably last. And now you're up to the last letter in the fear formula. And politicians are outstanding at this. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the need for you to applaud your own actions. Take a victory lap, whether you deserve it or not.
3: Shameless self-promotion is okay. It gets the job done. What I've laid out
2: here is the fear formula. And I hope that you can recognize along the way
3: what you're seeing with COVID-19. This is what we've seen. We've seen these things done and we need to speak up. For me, getting kids back in school is paramount.
2: We're seeing COVID-19 as a virus spare the zero to 20-year-old group remarkably. If you remember the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic, what we saw there was that virus picked on 18 to 40-year-olds viciously and heartlessly so that we had many soldiers mustering out of the military, having lived through World War I only to die of influenza. That was a nasty characteristic of the 1918 flu epidemic,
3: targeting the 18 to 40-year-olds. How brutal and ruthless. But COVID-19 is not doing that. COVID-19 is targeting the frail and the weak, the elderly with multiple underlying conditions. That doesn't make it any easier for that person like me
2: who's 65, who has a history of a couple of medical problems. I need to be aware of that. But it gives me comfort and solace to know that from zero to 20 in Minnesota, we've had one death. We've had very few problems in that regard. So we're going to have this question of autonomy and protecting our healthcare and protecting our society emerge over the next few months or year. And it's gonna include discussions regarding closing schools and more lockdowns. But the big one I've just alluded to earlier is going to be
3: vaccines. If we think that vaccines are going to be the cure all, we're kidding ourselves. Folks, a safe vaccine, single dose, Efficacious, broadly applicable to any age, regardless of underlying medical problems. That's a tall order. And then the question would be, is it mandated? Is your autonomy going to be undercut? If you choose to decline that vaccine,
2: what is the impact going to be on your life? Are you gonna be denied access
3: to this or to that? Are your children going to be denied access to this or that? So what am I saying? If you wanna solve a problem, you best recognize it. And I'm telling you, the fear formula is a problem that warrants recognition. I laid out the steps. This formula
2: has been used a lot by elected officials for years and years, but we're seeing it take
3: on center stage with public health, physicians, bureaucrats, politicians.
2: I won't forget hearing one of the leading public health officials in Illinois stand before TV cameras at a press conference and say something like this. Just because it says COVID-19 on a death certificate
3: as a cause of death, doesn't mean the patient died of COVID-19, really. You can't make this stuff up. When
2: you see Pennsylvania subtracting a couple hundred cases of COVID-19 deaths, because there's been a clash with the medical examiners and the coroners, you should be paying attention. And when you see Colorado doing something similar, And when you see Kentucky doing it, and when you see New York saying, we've had more deaths during this certain period of time than we typically do during this certain period of time. Therefore, that increased number must have been COVID-19 deaths. We just didn't recognize it or detect it. So we're going to push
3: that group of deceased persons into the COVID-19 death count. You better be paying attention. There's a fear formula out there and it's being exercised every day.
2: Media is willing to sensationalize anything to sell their message to you.
3: And if there's going to be a barrier between the loss of free speech, the collapse of democracy, if there's going to be a barrier, it's going to be you. How do I know that? Because I lived it. I lived it when a month ago, I learned that a pillar of my life, my medical license was in question because I had the audacity to compare COVID-19
2: to influenza because I had the obnoxious courage to say that the advice I was receiving regarding the use of COVID-19 as a cause of death on a death certificate was not the kind of advice I should have been receiving. It was ambiguous. It lacked clarity. It encouraged assumed or probable instead of precision and specificity. It neglected the specific sequence of causation that should be identified on a death certificate so that loved ones and generations to come might know truly what grandma Gertrude actually died of. That it wasn't COVID-19, it was colon cancer or it was congestive heart failure. And then in the last days of a person's life, incidentally, they may or may not have had a COVID-19 test. And incidentally, it may or may not have been positive. But the fact of the matter was, the congestive heart failure had driven them to hospice care. And in the last days of hospice care, The fluid retention and the shortness of breath became so immense that the patient's body gave out and they died, never mind a lab test that said
3: COVID-19 or not. Our autonomy matters. I want to thank you for letting me share with you my
2: experience. I'm absolutely convinced today, more than ever,
3: that censorship happens more casually than ever before particularly with social media. And that if a
2: licensing agency or a certification organization can be weaponized to come down on your life, your
3: career, your means of making a living, then it could happen. You, me, we all need to make certain that we're doing everything we can to protect our autonomy and to keep the big hand of government away from our lives as much as possible. Thanks for letting me have the the opportunity to converse with you. I really appreciate it. At this point in time, I'd like to just do an odd sort of question and answer.
2: I know that we're not having active engagement because of the Zoom filming and videography, if you will. But I thought there might be some questions that you might have. And so I've asked the producers to help me and they're feeding me some information regarding questions that they might have.
3: So how does a citizen decide what to do, where to go? It's a challenge. I would encourage you to remember that you under the formula
2: where the uninitiated are being united via groupthink. Groupthink is a powerful poison in our society. Don't go there. If you're in an echo chamber, if you're seeing the same news program every night, change channels. If you're watching the same personalities on
3: social media, introduce someone new. Do everything you can to see both sides. Try to to be a
2: lawyer for just a moment being able to argue either side of the case, the plaintiff's case or the defendant's case. Ask yourself, why does this person see it so differently than I do? And before trying to convince someone that you're right, first try to understand why the other person is saying something different. Stephen Covey said it a long time ago, seek first to understand, then be understood. If we can do that, We'll get to those crucial conversations and we can, if not connect the dots, we can at least connect the questions so that we might have a little bit of a pathway
3: forward. Another question I've heard is what about testing? All I can say there is stay tuned.
2: Specificity, sensitivity, accuracy, we're not there yet. We've got some good tests. We've got the PCR tests that look for active disease now. We've got the serology test that gives us a chance to look in the rear view mirror to see
3: if I've already had it. But I'm hoping we can get better, quicker, and more accurate. So folks, it's been my pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you for this honor. And please,
2: your autonomy depends on you and you need to recognize when it's being threatened. And one of the best ways you can recognize it is see f- the fear formula
3: being utilized when it is. See it on the early side before it's too late, because if it can happen to me, it can happen to anyone. Have a good day.
0: Before you take a risk, find out what it is. To learn more about vaccines, diseases, and the human right to inform consent, visit mvic.org, the website of the nonprofit charity, the National Vaccine Information Center, Since 1982, MVIC has worked to prevent vaccine injuries and deaths through public education and to secure informed consent protections in US vaccine policies and laws. Visit mvic.org and mvicadvocacy.org to get well-referenced vaccine information that you can trust and share with your family, friends, and members of your community. It's your health, your family, your choice.